0: You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com gps. That's netsuite.com slash GPS.
1: And we are back with the economist Zani Minton Bedders in London, the FT's Rana Farua in Rome, and Ian Bremmer here in New York. Um, Rana, you point out that if you look at the number of sessions and much of the talk at Davos this year, it was about something else that people are actually very worried about. Explain.
2: Absolutely. AI, big data, the digital revolution was really the hot topic. And what's interesting to me, it's been that way for many years at Davos, but this time you got the sense that this was really going way beyond the tech sector itself and going to every kind of business model. I spoke to an insurance executive, for example, who told me that sensors in cars and homes were going to enable his industry to write personalized policies. Now, of course, that's also going to result uh, in some kind of a digital underclass. We've already seen workers being left behind by technology. We may see people that... Can't be insured or can't get health care policies. What's concerning is that the state will be, of course, left to pick up the pieces. But the state, as you've talked about in your column, uh, and I'm talking about in my column in the FT tomorrow, is is very weak right now. Uh, Politics are polarized. So Western uh, liberal democratic states are being asked to do more. They can't. What's interesting is that more authoritarian states like China may actually be better positioned in the short term to manage this, this this disruption. But that also raises uh, the specter of a sort of authoritarian, technologically uh, adept state that, that is wrecking privacy. So lots of big political issues here.
1: Uh, Zani, m- my sense is that the tech companies uh, that at Davos were usually the kind of uh, the stars of the show are also aware that this new sense that technology is, first of all, causing a lot of job losses, uh, might be creating these monopolies, uh, is ushering in a kind of new wave of feelings about how to handle technology and big tech
3: I think that's absolutely right. There were, runners completely right, there were lots of sessions on AI and how it's going to change jobs or we're going to lose jobs. That's actually been a subject for some years, though, at Davos. For me, the two new elements of, of tech were that there was a really palpable sense of a tech-lash There's a political backlash against the big tech companies, the Googles, the Facebooks, they're now no longer the great shining lights of Western capitalism. They're too big, too concentrated, and all kinds of people are worried about that. And the second element, also slightly more worrying, is the number of people that said to me, China is ahead of us in AI and we have a real problem. The sense of AI as being Mm -hmm. something of part of the geopolitical rift between, or struggle for supremacy between China and the US.
1: Uh, Ian, so that, there's always that undercurrent at Davos as well. Is, is is China gaining ground? Is the United States losing out in the key sectors? Uh, again, at the surface, the American boom makes that seem not, not true. But w- what's your sense? Well, Chinese growth, of course, is adding a hell of a lot more to the global economy than American growth is at this point, And that continues to be the case uh, every year. Also, Chinese technology driven by the state as opposed to the United States. I mean, Trump is talking about manufacturing jobs. He's talking about coal. He's not talking about investing in AI. That's a sector that Chinese want to dominate. And I think both of those things really worry the Davos group, especially because the two dominant forces in AI in the world today are ideologically opposed to the multilateral developmental approach of uh, Davos. You've got the libertarians in Silicon Valley and you have the authoritarian state capitalists of Beijing. That unnerves the WEF folks in a really big way. Rana, do you sense that uh, as a result of all this, you, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have a kind of China, Chinese-American clash?
2: think you are I think that you're going to have a splinter net really you already see China going in a very different direction than not only the US but but Europe in terms of how they're thinking about the internet how they're regulating the internet Um, very tight ties between the state and tech firms there um, and unlimited ability to collect data you know I spoke to several Western data scientists that were sort of envious of how easy it is to collect data which is of course the basis of AI in China even as though even as they were worried about the authoritarian impact of all that that data collection. So um, it, it is a very disruptive time, to say the least.
1: And uh, Zanny, let me ask you, this is television, sir, and we have about a minute. Uh, quickly tell us why you chose to highlight the danger, not just of, of great power conflict, but actually of great power war in The Economist this week.
3: Two reasons. Firstly, because we think that there is a growing risk of great power conflict. One is there's an immediate risk, North Korea. We have a terrific piece that shows that the risk of a preventative attack by the United States is probably much greater than many people think. And secondly, all the things we've been talking about, a rising China, taking its place in the world, plus technological changes in the nature of warfare, we think makes the risk much greater than many people realize.
1: It's a terrific cover story, you should all read it. Um, Thank you all, fascinating panel. When we come back, my exclusive interview from Davos with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I'll ask him about the Iran deal, the U.S. Embassy move to Jerusalem, and about his own corruption scandal. There will be nothing because there is nothing. That's a quote not from Donald Trump about the Russia investigation, but from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. It's become a mantra of sorts for him when he is asked to comment on the investigations swirling around him. The Israeli police named Netanyahu a suspect in two cases involving bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. He has been interviewed multiple times by authorities, and his former chief of staff agreed last summer to testify against Prime Minister Netanyahu. Here again, Benjamin Netanyahu. Mr. Prime Minister, you, you will understand I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask this question. Um, it's about your own political future. You face in Israel ser- serious investigations. How should the world see this? Should the world look at this and say, this is Israeli democracy at work, where no one is above the law, above scrutiny, above investigation, or do you regard this as a political witch hunt?
0: Well, no one is above the law in Israel. and. Uh, That's the case uh, in this case too, but I'm also confident that nothing will come of it because there's nothing uh, to come out. So I think that it's just a question of time and uh, next year, yeah, invite me next year. We'll we'll do it once a year and you'll see if I'm proven right. You'll see that I am. Finally, you just came back from a trip to India. Yeah.
1: Um, Tell us what is it that all these countries that you have now been going to, Uh, that I'm deepening their ties with Israel. What is it that they they are trying to get from Israel? Two things.
0: They want security, protection against terrorism, and Israel is second to none in providing this valuable intelligence that has also prevented, for example, planes from being blown, blown out in the sky. That's not only a problem for the country that suffers that tragedy, but for all international civil aviation. Israel has been the leading force to protect Uh, the lives and the the critical facilities of many, many states, that's the first thing everybody wants that, because the firmaments of the sparks of radical Islam are flying into every continent and to every country. The second thing that they want is the future. It's not only to push back the bad, it's to seize the good. We are in a, a world of tremendous change. I mean, you've been talking about it. It's basically the confluence of big data, artificial intelligence, and connectivity. It's changing industries. Israel has a car industry within a matter of years. We make uh, 85% of the value of a car uh, is soon going to be uh, software. And all the other stuff, the, uh, the, the body, the chassis, the tires, the engine, that's minuscule. So essentially cars are computers on wheels. Now we have a car industry because there we compete. So, an Israeli company, right next to my office in Jerusalem, has just been sold to Intel for 15 billion dollars for autonomous vehicle technology. This technology is produced in Israel, but Israel is also not an, only an IT power; it's a, a water te- water power. De- uh, de- no, not only that, we we recycle almost 90 percent of our wastewater. The runner-up is Spain with about 20%, just to understand. So if you're a, a country that needs water and you can recycle your wastewater, you come to Israel. So this is this is a revolution. Israel, you know, we're w- working to build up the life of the Jewish state and afford us a future of prosperity and progress and peace.
1: Next week on GPS, don't miss my interview with King Abdullah II of Jordan here in Davos. Mark your calendars. Next up, today on GPS, many years ago, the political scientist Samuel Huntington coined the term Davos man to describe the average attendee at the World Economic Forum here in Davos. But in this era of further female empowerment, is Davos man making way for Davos woman? This year, the seven co-chairs of the meeting were all women. Was it just window dressing? When we come back. My book of the week is Christopher Hayes' Twilight of the Elites. I happen to bring Hayes' brilliant book along with me to read while milling around the World Economic Forum with Davos men and Davos women. It's a highly intelligent, even profound reflection on the problems with our current system of meritocracy that has so divided almost all our societies. And now, a last look from here in Davos, where there's some history being made, it's fascinating to see. All seven of the, the gathering's co chairs so this year are women. They're top leaders in business, finance, in, science, in and in social entrepreneurship. You have to talk about prosperity. All seven co chairs gathered on stage at an, an opening session, and one of them, the IMF's managing director, Christine Lagarde, quipped that something was out of the ordinary. But it's
3: a bit of a change from the Manel's panels <laughs> that we've had on occasions. <laughs>
1: But progress in gender at the top of Davos doesn't fully trickle down to the ranks of attendees. The World Economic Forum itself admits 21 percent of this year's 3,000 participants are women. While that's an improvement over past years, several female attendees voiced their frustration at the lopsided gender balance in these halls. The WEF's own Gender Gap Report is an annual publication that charts the progress of more than 100 countries toward gender equality. The most recent report for 2017 notes that the global gender gap has overall widened for the first time since they started measuring more than a decade ago. The report also suggests that based on current data, it will be 100 years before most countries have closed their overall gender gaps and 217 years to close the economic gap, including workforce participation and salary between men and women. Where did the United States fall on the 2017 gender gap? Well, it is in 49th place in the survey, its worst ranking in the history of the survey. Number one on the current rankings is Iceland, which recently passed legislation forcing companies to prove that any wage difference between employees is not due to gender. And on the survey's political empowerment sub-index, which measures the gap between men and women at the highest levels of political decision-making. The U.S. was in the lower half of the pack, coming in at 96 between Pakistan and Vietnam. Now, don't forget we have just launched the GPS Challenge online. Every Sunday, we'll post on our website 10 questions that will challenge your knowledge of the world. See how well you do. Go to CNN.com slash and try your hand. And thanks to all of you for being part of this program. I will see you next week.